Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today we bring you a very special guest, Dr. Ken Fader, professor of archaeology at Central Connecticut State University and author of several books on archaeology and the criticism of pseudo-archaeology. We're so excited to have him on the show with us. Hello. Hi. Hi there. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here and not like lying down with my leg elevated because of my broken ankle. So it's been a <laughs> We're very glad of that, too. Um, okay, well, in the interest of, of sparing your broken ankle from too much questioning, let's let's hop right in. Can you, yeah. for us and our listeners, describe the trajectory of your career? So how did you come to archaeology? And from there, how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, I feel like I should be sitting down like on a, on a couch. And you guys are my therapists. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you should be sitting down, too. <laughs> well, there you, well, yeah, lying down. How about lying down? So... Honest to God, and this is this is like my introductory lecture when I teach intro archaeology. Mm-hmm. It's like no lie. When I was four years old, I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up, and that was a dinosaur. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I, not just any dinosaur. I I wanted to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. You oh, know? solid plan. I wanted to be Ambitious. the badass dinosaur. And it wasn't until I was about I don't know five or six that the awful truth was revealed to me. <laughs> That even in America, where you should be able to grow up be anything you want, you, you can't become uh, a, a member of an extinct species. Mm-hmm. And so I was – that hit me hard, let me tell you. I, I was I was an unhappy guy. But then my – I had a friend, a much older friend. He was like six. And he said, well, maybe you won't be a dinosaur, but you can be the kind of person who studies dinosaurs. I had no idea such a thing was real. Um, and then I found – found out about paleontology and I grew up in New York. So I was not, not that far from the American Museum of Natural History, right. which my parents took me to on a regular basis. And I was in heaven, you know, with those amazing, spectacular dinosaur bones that are on display there. I just was, this is great. So I would bother my parents to take me there all the time. And they cultivated my interest. They bought me books, the How and Why Wonder Book of Dinosaurs and all about dinosaurs. Uh, the shy stegosaurus of Cricket Creek, about a oh. talking dinosaur. I, I didn't buy that, but that's okay. Um, and really, it was for the first, I got, up until my teenage years, I wanted to be a paleontologist. I wanted to go to the Gopi Desert and dig up eggs with Roy Chapman Andrews, who was a paleontologist at the museum in New York. I think at some point along the way, I got sort of distracted by astronomy. And I decided, well, wait a minute, maybe I could be an astronomer. I got to tell you, my mother was not particularly – my mother was a very uh, wonderful, wonderful person and very um, practical. 
And she really began worrying when I was a teenager, how would I ever make a living, you know, <laughs> capitalism, in a, as a paleontologist? And of course, as a 14-year-old, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just thinking, hey, I, I, I can do this. I can go to the Gobi Desert. Uh, my mother at one point even suggested that she that she had a more practical job for me that would be just like paleontology. And I said, what is that, mom? And she said, dentistry. <laughs> no, I said, what? And she said, yes, well, you know, dentists, paleontologists dig up dinosaur teeth. And as a dentist, you'd be dealing with teeth. And I, I thought, well, mom, that's not really what I want to do. And she said, well, you can be a paleontologist. That could be your hobby. You know, work five days a week, do uh, root canals. And then Take the red eye to <laughs> every Friday night, dig up dinosaur bones with Roy Chapman Andrews and come home, uh, be, be back in wherever uh, in, the, in the U.S. for my first patient, my first appointment on Monday morning. Yeah, I wasn't real pleased about that. But you know what? When I told her I don't want to be a paleontologist anymore, she was thrilled. But when I said I, I want to I go into astronomy, <laughs> she was not thrilled because, again, she thought that's a job. You know, that's isn't that just a hobby? Actually, when I um, I went to the State University of New York at Stony Brook, it was a wonderful school. And when I was there during freshman orientation, I actually declared my major as astronomy. Hmm. Well, that's what I was going to do. Uh, it turns out that the first two years of an astronomy program, it's all math and physics. My really naive view of astronomy was, you know, you you wake up at two. Two o'clock in the afternoon, you go to the, uh, the the observatory and you look at really cool stuff through telescopes, and that's your class. You know, you order pizza and beer, and and look at look at cool things through telescopes. So I was I was okay at math, but I sort of reached my peak in high school and began not showing up to classes. Now I, I got to got to tell you, this is the late '60s and early '70s, which were as weird as people will tell you they were. Uh, and so my first semester at university was terrible. And I kind of randomly, very randomly selected a bunch of courses for the like my second, the, the spring semester of my freshman year. And one of those courses was Introduction to Anthropology, which was a gigantic class. Um, I'll give a shout out to uh, my prof in that class who just died, William Ahrens, who actually made a name for himself uh, as being the guy who said, you know what? All those descriptions of cannibalism by by white anthropologists and white explorers were greatly exaggerated in an effort to belittle and and to to uh, demean native people. Uh, and he was a great prof. And it was a huge, a huge class. I mean, literally, I think there were six hundred kids in the class. And again, this was just coin toss. I took an introduction to anthropology course. Uh, but the course was divided up. So like one day a week, we would meet in groups of like 40 with graduate students. And I really enjoyed that. I thought that was pretty cool. And it was mostly cultural anthropology. And I had to do a pay. Everybody had to do a book report, or take an ethnography and do a book report. I even remember which it was. It was the village in the Vaucluse. It's about these, these, these folks in France living this this kind of almost medieval existence well into the 20th century. And I thought it was pretty cool. At the, I handed in that paper. Um, the grad student gave me like an A on it and said, could you talk to me? And I thought, uh-oh, am I in trouble? And she said, what's your major? And I said, I don't really have a major. It was astronomy, but that didn't work out. <laughs> she said, all right, well, 
well, have you thought about anthropology? And I was sort of backing out of the class. Oh, you know, I, this was a great class. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not a real people person. So, well, it's not all cultural anthropology. There's also linguistics. We studied language. That was, it was a four-field school. And I said, well, language. Yeah, my dad, he's a linguist. But I, I don't know about that. And then there's human variation and evolution. I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm just kind of walking out saying I'm not really that interested. And then she said, and also there's the archaeology program. And I stopped dead in my tracks. I said, wait, you mean archaeology is a part of anthropology here? She said, oh, you're yeah, a wonderful anthropologist, a wonderful archaeologist. I said, well, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I was really into paleontology. But because I had this general interest in the past, I also had books about Egypt and Stonehenge. And I'm talking about books meant for kids who are 9 and 10 and 12 years old. And I thought, well, archaeology, that's, that's really interesting, too. Maybe I'll take a couple of those classes. And I took a class with Phil Weigand, the late Phil Weigand, who was just uh, a Mesoamericanist, um, and from Pedro Armias, who was a Spanish guy who came to America after the revolution there. Um, he had been, uh, um, I think, imprisoned by the fascists, uh, lived in Mexico and became an, uh, one of the world's preeminent experts on the Aztecs and just the sweetest man imaginable. I had no idea at the time that he was a huge deal. And I used to go into his office and just sit and talk about archaeology, again, not even not knowing that I was talking to a star in the field. He, and those two guys could not have been more supportive. Uh, the other people in the department, Dolores Newton, Stanley Regelson, just really great people. And I thought, I listen, I won't be, I'm not going to grow up to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex, but I can certainly study the past. And they, they just set me on my path, um, all of these people, and I owe them a tremendous debt. Um, and then from there, went on to graduate school at the University of Connecticut and uh, got my PhD there and started teaching at Central Connecticut State University in, oh God, 1977. It's more than 40 years ago. <laughs> and it's all field schools. And I, I should probably stop and let you ask another question. But it it's, wasn't until I began teaching there that the um, – the tremendous amount of misinformation that was out there about the archaeological record really entered into my brain, uh, that it wasn't just some one-off with that Eric von Donneken book, Chariots of the Gods. And that's when I started thinking about, maybe I should design a class around that, because you know it's important to teach radiocarbon dating and important to teach settlement patterns and, and archaeological theory. But my gosh, if kids are walking into your class thinking that, that eight spacemen built the pyramids you got a real problem. Uh, and I guess that sort of set me on my career path. You still do field research. Oh, yeah. Like pursuant to kind of where you, like what you did your, your dissertation research on? Do you still? No. Is oh. it still, still? Okay. So that's something else that, that we, um, so we have, you know, some of our listeners and some of the folks that, that we meet who want to be archaeologists or want to be anthropologists so there's sort of this um fear of commitment like what if i do <laughs> like if i start doing this if i even if i do my dissertation on this what happens if i get sick of it what happens if, what if somebody else is it? asking the same questions yeah. that, that i am um and and so that's that's shifted for you yeah there's there's a long and very very gruesome story about what happened at the university of connecticut when i was a grad student. i i was a grad student i walked in the door to find out that the department had fractured. 
and there was all this political intrigue mm. and people who were not being granted tenure and people who weren't talking to each other. And in fact, when I arrived as a student in anthropology, I found out that, well, actually, there are two anthropology departments now. There's biocultural anthropology and there's sociocultural anthropology, and nobody was talking to one another. And it was a really, a real bad scene. Then, but what's even funnier, I'm funny and not like haha funny, but oh my God, bizarre funny, was that then the biocultural anthropology department fractured. <laughs> so it was like one person was, one, was a biocultural anthropologist, the other was a biological anthropologist. And the field work that had been done before I arrived was that 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 I wanted to be involved with was in Alaska. It was at a, an, on the Anangula Island, which is the Aleutian chain, oh. and they had excavated a site that was uh, uh, they called it a, 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 what an uh, occupation of a remnant of the Bering Land Bridge Coast which is really what it was based on geology and archaeology. And the site, Anangula, the Anangula site was, God, 9,000 years old. So it was an extremely old, for the time, and this representing a part of the Beringian coast, a very important site. Mm -hmm. So my hope was that they were going to take me there. My mentor, uh, Jean Eigner, is a brilliant woman uh, who was doing the archaeology. She was the archaeologist. William Laughlin was the biological anthropologist. Uh, and there, that, there's there are whole pod, podcasts you could do about Bill Laughlin and Gene Eigner and and what happened up there. They had a big falling out, and while Gene had all the the archaeological data, she was kind of persona non grata, and her students were persona non grata at the site. Mm. So I never got to go to Anangula, but I had this vast uh, database that I that I was a, a, uh, able to analyze, and it was an application of this program, Trend Surface Analysis, which is a, it's a mapping program, and we were effectively just mapping out the stone tool manufacture and stone tool use at the site using a, a, a mapping program that was really designed as for, to, for topography. It was a really cool application of it. But that, so although I was able to finish my dissertation, after that I was kind of soured to the whole idea of trying to get up to Alaska. Um, and that because I got the, this job in Connecticut, and I had done a bunch of work in Connecticut as a grad student and found this area really fascinating. So it was a real easy transition for me. Um, and I, it was like, you know, life gives you lemons, you make beef stew, which is what the comedian Andy Malinakis <laughs> said. And truer words have never been spoken, I guess. <laughs> and immediately kind of glommed on to a really good community of people here. Uh, and this is in the late 70s, early 80s, and have been doing that ever since. And so this is the Farmington River Valley Project? Farmington River Archaeological Project, right. Okay. And this, um, this was a, what? it had kind of, it, see, the, the, the notion had been when I arrived on the scene that here in southern New England, the major river valleys, the Connecticut River, the the Thames, don't ever say Thames in Connecticut, nope. the Thames River and the Housatonic, which flow into Long Island Sound, right? And that, so the sound, the air, the 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 the, um, the coast of the southern coast of Connecticut, and those two big river valleys, it was assumed that's where all the action was in antiquity, and that in the uplands and in the smaller valleys, people move through there, and maybe maybe they use those intermittently or seasonally, but the real archaeology was along the coast and along the major river valleys. And the thing is, you know, when you're a grad student, one of the, 
one of the, the, the greatest things of being a grad student is knowing that your mentors are wrong. <laughs> is, you know, yeah, absolutely. So, so my mentors all told me the, the folks who were working in Connecticut, uh, now, you know, when, when you get, when you go off and do your real, your research in Connecticut, and if that's what happens, uh, don't, you need to focus on the, the major river valleys. And so I, I got this job at Central Connecticut State University, and I lived for a while in an apartment complex in Farmington. And every day I drove over the Farmington River to get to school. And based on everything I had learned as an undergraduate, as a graduate, and all the experience I had in grad school, God, this was a beautiful area. It had all of the, the requisite resources to have been attractive in antiquity. So you've got a major river and that's navigable. You've got not gigantic, but sizable floodplains. You have all these geological features. And in fact, a nearby, nearer to where I was, the Farmington Valley, than, than if you were in the Connecticut Valley or the other river valleys, was a really good source of rock. Um, the basalt in Talcott Mountain, which is a 180 million year old volcanic rock, and some of it's really coarse and you can't make much out of it but some of it is pretty fine and it turns out it overrode sandstone we got lots of sandstone in the in the in connecticut and it overrode the sandstone it metamorphosed it mm. it baked it into this other rock hornfells and hornfells it looks like flint and acts like flint and whereas other river valleys in connecticut there's a lot of trade going uh, between them and the Hudson Valley, where the flint sources are, in the Farmington Valley, you didn't. While well, that did happen, you didn't have to do that because there was this abundant, but only locally abundant raw material that was really good for for napping for That's chipping really stone. Cool. Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely. What's, what's cool too is that we're not really sure where those sources are, but the native people were very sure of where they were, <laughs> and so and a lot of that has to do with construction. Uh, road building where they blasted out all these sources because it's not everywhere where the the basalt overrode the igneous rock overrode the sandstone that this happened but where it did the rock is is really nice it, that's one of those things as an archaeologist where you get to I don't know either impress or gross out your students <laughs> you know, flint is really slick if you if you lick a piece of flint it doesn't stick to your tongue and geologists lick rocks all the time. Hornfells, though it may look very much like flint, same color, the same same ish sheen, uh, uh, it is a lot more absorbent. So when you lick it, you look at a piece of hornfells, it sticks to your tongue. Hundred percent of the time, you can distinguish flint from hornfells. Huh. And so there's nothing like being out in the field with a bunch of students who's never done this before and saying, "Oh, I wonder if this is flint," and then licking it. And they go, "What are you doing?" And then licking a piece. I see how it gets stuck here. You try it. Eventually they get into it, but 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 it takes a while, uh, and so yeah, that's so. And I've been doing that ever since, and that's really expanded because there's this amazing um, history that is late, very late in the period before contact, and then well into contact, where there's a lot of, of fascinating archaeology. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the lighthouse site, which is one of my focuses. This is an incredible place where. There's this this long-standing legend in northwestern Connecticut about a community, a mixed ethnic racial community, where a Narragansett Indian man who was tr from Block Island in, in Long Island Sound, who was getting itinerant labor, working. This is in the 1700s, mid 1700s to late 1700s, doing various odd jobs, 
finding a job at this this wealthy uh, this wealthy owner's estate in Wethersfield, Connecticut. And the the legend is that he had this 25 year old daughter, the 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 rich white guy, who he kind of every every one of her suitors was unsuitable because they were beneath her station. And in the in the legend, this young woman Mary Mary Barber threatens her father that you know if you cross me now and I will marry he who next shall seek my hand, be he white or any color. So it's a little poetic foreshadowing, right? right. That, that, hey, you know what, Dad? If this guy's not good enough for you, the next guy, I don't care what color he is, I'm marrying him. And the, this legend it ends up being, being put into a poem in the, in the 1950s by Lewis Mills, who was a Connecticut educator, high school in one of our towns is named after him. And the, in the story, this guy, James Chogham, Narragansett, gets to work on this estate, hears about her threat, asks for her hand in marriage, knowing her for maybe a month, and she says, yeah, and they disappear. And I'm not sure how much of that is true, but a, but Mary, James and Mary are show up in Bark Hampstead, Northwestern Hills of Connecticut, in at least by 1770, and they have eight children, and as they, they form this little community, more people begin moving into the community, and some of those folks are Tungsis Indians, and they're native people. Uh, a couple of the pe- folks who move in are Mohegans, again, native people from Connecticut. But also we have Isaac Jacklin, who's an African-American, who moves into that community and marries in. And they have all these children, and that this, this community exists until 1860. And Is this a so show on the CW? <laughs> It, it almost should be. You know, what's funny is that when, when I was doing this project, I actually had a guy who was um, uh, an aspiring screenwriter uh, in, in California. And his, his plan was to make this into either a documentary or a fictionalized account <laughs> of this amazing story. Yeah, Nothing ever came of it. It's still a great story. Yeah. Um, eventually, by the 1860s, these folks all kind of move out. And uh, I hear about this. I read about this. I read this 150-page long poem about it, and I begin to do oh, this geez. documentary research. And guess what? Yeah. Oh my God! It's by the by the flow in Tuxedo River. By oh my God! It's really well. I, oh, it I sounds say, like the song of Hiawatha. The it's you know what that you know meter. Why? You notice that it's exactly the meter of Hiawatha. Yep. Which turns out is based on a Finnish epic poem. Oh yeah, the um, yeah, the Kalevala. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. How weird is that? It's very. And weird. so, so yeah, when, when when somebody handed me the the book of the Legend of Barthamstead Lighthouse, and I opened it, I was kind of aghast at, oh my, my god, it's a poem. Uh, but it had a lot. There were a lot of names in that poem, and those are names I ended up finding in Whoa. birth record, death record. Oh, how cool. And, you know, the thing that was easy about it is that the name Chagum spelled variously. It's not like I'm searching down Smiths. Do I have the right Smith? <laughs> if you're a Chagum, sometimes with C's, sometimes with G's, sometimes with G's, you are a member of that family. And you want the coolest part of all. I mean, the coolest, coolest part of all is that in the late 1990s, I get an, an email from a woman living in New Orleans. And it's almost apologetic. She says, dear Dr. Fader, I'm sorry to disturb you. I know you're very busy. My name is Connie Dubois. And when I was growing up as a little girl in Indiana, my father told me that we were descendants 
from an Indian tribe called the Lighthouse Tribe in Connecticut. I said, holy crap. And it turns out she's a ninth generation descendant. And Connie has, with no training at all, has become probably the most uh, effective genealogist I've ever known. (laughs) She has tracked down her family. She's got a a Chagum family uh, uh, Facebook site. And in 2015, I met Connie in 2015. Connie uh, did a, had a reunion in Bar Campstead, and pe- descendants of the original people, James and Molly, came from all over the country, from California, oh, wow. from Louisiana, from Indiana, and met each other for the first time. It's just it was incredible, and I was invited to participate, and I gave them a tour of the village. People, people are visiting this. There's a cemetery there. So here are, imagine that you've been told the story all your life and you've been told to keep it quiet because, you know, those drunken Indians. I've heard that from so many of the descendants oh, that yikes. they knew they were descendants, but they were ashamed of it because they were told this is not something to be proud of. So when I, I brought these people, I, I take zero credit. This is not about me. This is about them. But when I brought them to the cemetery, there are people weeping. Because these are their great, 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 great grandparents. I mean, again, unimaginable to me as primarily a prehistorian who comes to a place where I am talking to people for whom this is their story. This is their this is their home. It was just amazing. Uh, and the town of Barkhamsted, which had treated the the descendants of the lighthouse poorly in the past, actually, this was uh, July fourth, and they had. It, this was like a Norman Rockwell painting. Here you've got <laughs> this. This they decide to have a, 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 a but but a but a 21st century Norman Rockwell because the, the, some of the descendants are very dark skinned, and if you saw them on the street, you would assume they're African American because that's some of their their ancestors were. There are people there who look like they're European. They have light eyes. They have light skin. There are people who are descendants who look like George Catlin's. Uh, 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 paintings of Native Americans. So it's this incredible mixture. And they marched. They were the 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 uh, what the the people marching. It was it was in honor of them that they marched in the parade. They all wore their their t-shirts. Um, some of them were in regalia because they had maintained their Indian um, uh, uh, identity. And I wanted a place along that parade route where I could take great pictures of them. And Con- just before the parade started, Connie called me over, and, and I thought, oh, it's going to meet some more people. And I saw they were they had a banner, the Lighthouse Family Reunion. And then I said, Connie, I've got to go. You know, I got to go find a place to, to stand. And she said, No, 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 Kenny, you're marching with us. And I said, Oh, Connie, that's crazy. I'm not a member of the family. She said, You know, Connie. Connie said to me, Kenny. Well, Connie's from Louisiana, so she calls me Kitty. The Kitty. <laughs> You're one of us. We're, we've adopted you. You're a member of the family. Aww. And it was like the most emotional thing I've ever experienced as an archaeologist that, oh, my God. And you can see me, that's this this pasty-faced white guy with white hair holding a banner next to the members of the Lighthouse community. It was just really, really a, a stunning thing to have happen. And because they – this is an instance in which these, these folks – genuinely appreciated the archaeology because in in so much of their story had been beaten out of them has been intentionally forgotten and that they saw archaeology as a way of helping rekindle some of those memories and if that man it's like again no 
all credit is due the the members of the family. And I just am like, I am proud that they generously uh, shared what they know about their story with me. And anything I could share with them, that was just fantastic. Ah, that's wonderful. If we could sort of hop over to sort of your your teaching history. Um, So as someone who teaches archaeology to a number of students who probably aren't coming to you from that background. How do you, how do you approach archeology? span And, and also since you are so interested in, um, pseudo archeology, span how do you approach those two things in the classroom? Like, how do you, how do you attract your students and how do you keep your students? Is there like a come for the X, stay for the Y thing? Uh, Well, you know, that's actually evolved for me through time. You know, when I started teaching, I was, you know, a straight up, all right, I teach archeological method. Uh, you, need to know that the half-life of radiocarbon is 5,730 years. And it's all that stuff. That, it is important stuff. But uh, let me let me share with you. I mean, I'm full of anecdotes. So <laughs> let me share something with you that happened that, that really changed my whole perspective on teaching. And it happened pretty far into my career. So it was 2008, and I had just uh, given back the midterm. Professors experience those moments of angst, existential angst all the time, where you hand back the, the, the exam and you, you wonder, was the sound system not working in the class? Uh, is this I, my fault? I, am, I making, am I making any sense at all? Because uh, generally speaking, people didn't do very well on the exam. And so I'm really wondering, uh, is it me? Is it our students changing? Are they distracted? Uh, whatever. And it was a few days later, I actually received a letter from a guy who had been in my class four years earlier. And he was a non-traditional student a little bit. He was older and he was married and already had a kid. So he had a little girl. And I, 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 he writes – so he writes this letter to me four years after the fact. And it was very, very nice. Of course, he starts off by saying, Dr. Fain, you won't remember me. And at first, I really didn't. And then I said, oh, yeah, you're the guy, the married guy. And you won't remember me. And I wasn't a very good student. And I checked and he was telling me the truth. His grades weren't great. But it was one of these really very, very nice letters, very much appreciated. But I wanted to thank you for that class. It really was a great class. And it really opened up my eyes to stuff that I had never thought about before. Uh, especially, he said, uh, the, you know, the, those times when you showed pictures of sites that you have been to where you use those as case studies for the archaeological theories and methods that you talked about earlier in the class. So I really appreciated all those photographs. And I, I, I at that point, had been to a bunch of sites on vacations or whatever, not really doing research, but just because I thought, well, these are great places to visit. Um, and I, that, well, that's great. It's really nice to, re- to receive a letter so, so far after the, the person was in class. But it goes on. It gets even better. He says, Dr. Fader, I wanted to tell you that my, I now have two kids. So I've got a four-year-old daughter and like an almost one-year-old daughter. And me and the fam, we went on vacation this past summer. And we decided to go to see the Grand Canyon. And we flew out to Phoenix. And we were going to we rented a car. And we were going to drive north to the Grand Canyon. And on the drive north, on the I-17, for anybody who's interested, the interstate, as we're driving north, I see this big brown National Park Service sign that says, this exit, Montezuma's Castle. And I didn't, I didn't write it back and correct him. There's no apostrophe S there. It's just Montezuma Castle. It's this beautiful cliff dwelling. And he says in the letter, I turned to my wife 
headset. And somehow I'm always referred to in this way. This is my epithet. He said, remember that crazy archaeology professor I told you about? <laughs> and he said that my wife said, oh, yeah, sure. He said, he showed us pictures of this place. That's an amazing coincidence. And then he says to his wife, the pictures are really cool. Do you mind if we get off the exit? Because I remember him saying he was pretty close off the exit and, you know, walking around a little bit. And he says in the letter, my wife said, yeah, that's fine. The kids can run around a little, get a little get a little uh, air. So that was all cool. So he says to me, Dr. Freire, we got off this exit. We went and saw Montezuma's castle. He said it was everything. It was amazing. Your pictures were great, but seeing it in three dimensions and seeing the, the skills of the, the native people who built this thing. They were real architects and engineers. And, you know, until I had seen those photos, until I saw it in person, I had never considered that. I thought Indians lived in teepees and, and hunted buffalo. But this was so different. Um, we really enjoyed it. My wife had a great time. And if that if the letter had ended there, I would have been super, super stoked, right? That's so cool. It didn't end there. It got even better. He said, Dr. Fader, uh, we saw it. We spent a couple hours there. Walk back to the car. And as we're leaving, my four-year-old says to me, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be an archaeologist. Yeah. I mean, you know, holy crap. So, so remember, I start here thinking I'm not having an impact, an educational impact on the students in my class. And here this guy is telling me, you know what, I'm having, I'm having a multi-generational impact. The children of people who've taken my class are now interested in archaeology. I thought that was pretty cool. You know, it's the kind of come for the ancient aliens, stay for the real deal archaeology. And that's that's that that's kind of what that class has evolved to be. But then I but, but then I thought, what what do I want students who come into an introductory archaeology class, what do I want them to, to know? How what how do I want to change them? Right? And is it well, now they know the half-life of radiocarbon. That's not a bad thing to know. I don't mind if they know that. But how about this? The archaeological record is really very interesting, and there are things that I can personally engage in as an adult. I can go and visit these places. When, there, when there's legislation for preserving places like this, I will vote in the affirmative because – these are important places. I, I've seen them. I've, I've heard this guy Fader talk about them, and they really are interesting and cool. And if you like the outdoors, if you like hiking, if you like art, if you like culture, if you like history, if you like Native American culture, if you like something that's different, it's all wrapped into the same package. And so if I can convince students at, when they leave my class, if, if, if all they leave that class with is a, an appreciation for – the antiquity, of, obviously, of the world, but especially here in America, because that's what they're more likely going to engage in. That's my goal. And so I, I actually changed that class to where now a lot of it is – there's plenty of method and theory up front, but a lot of it is, hey, look, folks, you hear a lot of crap about the archaeological record. Let me tell you a real deal, and I'll tell you a real deal by showing you places that I've actually been to. And these are places you can go to uh, – uh, after you leave the university, well, you can go to now or after you leave the university. And I now get communications from students who say, Dr. Fader, uh, I have relatives in St. Louis, and so I made sure that when I was there, I saw Cahokia. It's a, it's a, what, a Native American city. I never knew such a thing existed. And I have kids who go out west 
who say, you know, we, I like hiking a lot. I never knew that you could see rock art that's thousands of years old and it's astonishing and it's amazing. And all that crap on cable, ancient aliens in Atlantis, that's nothing. The real stuff is so much more interesting. And if I do that, I, you know what? I've, I've, I've accomplished. That's my, that's my goal. Well, speaking of the crap that's peddled on cable, indeed, I'm gonna, um, I, think I should I should copyright that phrase. <laughs> so if you use it, you have to have a little C there. Okay. Yes. Okay. Noted. What's your strategy for for dealing with folks, either your students or just like randos on the bus or people online um, that are interested and like here for the real deal archaeology, but still, despite their best intentions, seem to cling to pseudo archaeological ideas. Think, How do you help yeah, them? That's, that's a really do you, Father? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. And okay. here's the deal. You know, whenever I, I survey students and, and other people have used my little survey instrument, what you find out is the percentage of, of students who are, you, know, you use that, the Likert scale, you know, strongly mm-hmm. believe, strongly agree, mildly agree, don't know, mildly disagree, strongly disagree. And when you do that, a proportionally very few fall out on the strongly believe part of that equation. And I've got to tell you, in most cases, those people cannot be swayed because they don't want to be swayed, right? <laughs> you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to change their minds, but you know what? That's a very tiny percentage. And so you've got all these people in the middle who basically are saying, yeah, I don't know about those aliens, but really could, 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 could people build pyramids? They're so big. So there's this this kind of uncertainty uh, about what the past really shows, and they are it's fertile fields for for uh, folks who are willing to to lie or who are willing to completely misrepresent what the archaeological record is. And yep, some of those folks are just out now racists who say American Indians they couldn't have done that. They're not capable of that. Um, you, we literally have people saying Egyptians, they're Africans. They couldn't have done that on their own. Uh, and some of those people, you know, you're not, you're just simply not going to sway. Uh, you know, I'm not going to have a conversation with a Nazi about, you know, Jews or blacks or white supremacy because I'm not going to, I don't, I don't have to win that argument. Right? I already know they're crazy people, but the deal is that most folks aren't, they're somewhere in the middle. And so those folks are, I mean, here's what I tell people. I get, because of, I've been on a bunch of these cable shows and because of my books, I get a lot of emails from people. Just within the last couple of weeks, I've gotten emails from folks. And generally speaking, I get emails where the subject lines are like, you know, you know, they call me F- MFs. I'm an MFer. I'm an a-hole. And, you know, those are people who are not looking for a dialogue. So, they're looking for an argument. And I'm not, I don't, life is way too short to spend any time arguing with those folks. Um, there's an old, you guys familiar with uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus? Is that still a thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, there, there's that wonderful bit with the, uh, you know, I'd like to purchase, I'd like to buy an argument, which is like it's a company where you could go and buy five, pay five bucks and have an argument with somebody. And it's, but, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in arguing for the sake of argument. So, and those people are, those people write me these scurrilous, a part of a conspiracy. I am a terrible person. I'm lying to my students. My God, I actually had somebody who wrote a physical letter to my dean demanding that I be fired. 
because I said that you know Egyptians actually built the pyramids. Though that's not somebody I'm I'm not going to reach those. They're unreachable. I don't care. Let them go about their lives. But it's all these other folks who are well. Gee, how did how did the Egyptians build the pyramids? I got this very long email from a guy, an engineer, in fact. I think it's National Geographic. Is it real? And you were so dismissive of the alien hypothesis. But I'm an engineer. I cannot imagine how people could, on their own, build those pyramids. And he went on and on and on. So what I did was I said, look, let's have this conversation after you read a book. Two books, actually. And I I sent him a reference to Dieter Arnold's Building in Egypt. I think think that's the title of it. Just marvelous book that focuses on how the Egyptians built stuff. And there are photographs of the, the, the tools they used. There are photographs of the artwork done by ancient Egyptians showing them moving tremendous blocks of stone, showing them carving monumentally scaled statues. And I said, read that book and then take a look at the uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Houdin, Bob Breyer book on, on the, uh, the internal ramp hypothesis. And then go watch the National Geographic episode about that. And then get back to me. And this guy actually did. And he wrote me an email, a follow-up email, basically saying, I had no idea you archaeologists actually knew all this stuff. <laughs> and that's that's hurtful. Oh. But at the same time, it's really – but it's important to realize that you know, when I've got five minutes on a, a cable show, that's not the equivalent of – of you reading a book that goes into the details and the complexities of what we know and how we know it. And people who are willing to read those books are the ones who are much more easily reached. In the classroom, basically, I say, look, uh, you've all heard, I ask, how many of you have seen Ancient Aliens? Virtually all of them raise their hand. How many of you think there's something to that? And maybe on a good day, a quarter of them Say, yeah, maybe. And maybe there's one kid in a class of 90 who says, no, I think that's the real deal. And then what I do is I tell them, all right, what we'll do is we're going to talk about how archaeologists know what they know and then show you what we actually know on the basis of our application of that stuff. And if at the end you still think aliens built the pyramids, I'm not sure I know what to tell you because the argument that I'm going <laughs> to is absolutely persuasive. And at the end, I, I generally – and it's, it's always hard to know with students, and I, this is not their fault, that how much of what they're saying to me is, you know, the Stockholm Syndrome, right? That I have them – I've kidnapped them. I'm holding them hostage, and unless they say the right thing, I'm not going to give them a good grade. Uh, but I think in the end, the majority of them, at least now, it's like when – I, I just I, – I, this isn't really tangential, but just – I occasionally get students who will email me again a year or two after the fact saying, Dr. Fainer, you're going to be proud of me. I watched the episode with my, you know, my boyfriend of Ancient Aliens, and he was really convinced about this. And I told him, this is why this is bullshit. <laughs> and, and, and I knew it because I took your class. Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu/apn today. 
you know, we're, you know, we're fighting against the tide here, but we, we, we do what we can. And we, but we don't ignore it. We don't walk away from it. Um, if somebody is interested in, if somebody wants to have dialogue with me, even if they're rude, come back and talk to me when you've read Dieter Arnold's book, when you've read Breyer's book, when you've, when you've looked at some of, uh, uh, the Mark Lehner stuff, because that's how you learn about this. It's not from watching a 50 minute documentary on cable that has a particular agenda. Yeah. Well, okay. So also jumping off of pop culture things, is, is there hope? <laughs> Are there any depictions of archaeology or archaeologists in pop culture that you like or any places where that depiction is done particularly well or sort of well or a little bit well? <laughs> so I read that one and that was the one I said, like, oh, I hope they don't ask. Because cut it out. Brain. <laughs> This racket, my brain's using. Uh, not really. Well, um, we couldn't think of any either. So yeah, yeah, that's why we wanted to ask you. I'm, I'm actually glad of that. And so many. I, mean, I think that part of the problem here is that so many of them are based on this Victorian era trope, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's oh my god. I mean, look, I like me some Indiana Jones as much as the next person. But I know what's wrong with it. I mean, the guy's a tomb robber, for God's sake. Oh, yeah, there are um, things that we like because they're dumb and fun. But Yeah, I guess. I guess, right? Uh, i got to give you, I got at the end of this, when we're, right before we're done, I'm going to give it, you and everybody else a really bad movie, archaeologically based movie to watch that you yes. all have to watch. Yes, yes, Because yes. it's so bad, it's remarkable. Okay, um, <laughs> great. Uh, but, but, yeah, there's... You know, I, I look at, at, at pop culture tropes are like, you know, it's like Giorgio walking around with his khakis and his, uh, you know, his his like native looking necklace. And he's and of course, he's always all by himself. It's, it's the lone, the lone Victorian explorer. Right. And you look at it, you go, dude, he's he's got cameramen all around, him and camera women all around him and sound people. He's not by himself investigating this. He's got a whole crew around him. And Josh Gates, again, with his. You know, his where's the fedora? And he's got his own. I think now doesn't he have his own brand of clothing, or at least Giorgio does. So it's all about branding, and that's you know, it's not. And again, it's this Victorian era. Um, there's if it's not overtly racist, there's a bunch of racist undertones, even if they're unaware of them. You know, the great white, and it's almost always a guy, the great white explorer who's going to solve the mysteries that the native people can't. Plus, in pop culture, it's all this. We discovered this art deep in a canyon in Utah, and maybe it's a pterodactyl. It's my God, Native people have been holding ceremonies there for hundreds of years. Uh, that doesn't that count at all? <laughs> you didn't discover, shit. oh well, whatever. Um, and so, no, I'm not really about any of those pop culture references. So, but here, here's part of the problem. Part of the problem is I've actually been in talks twice with people who are thinking about, and this is like way, way in the future, uh, uh, a show based on the book that I wrote encouraging people to visit 50 archaeological sites or my archaeological oddities book. Notice how I'm cleverly dropping mm. hints about mm -hmm. these books. You can buy on Amazon, by the way. Uh, but anyway, two entirely different production companies use exactly the same two words to describe what would sell an archaeologically based cable show. The two words were mysteries and treasure. Yeah. That's what archaeology is in pop culture. 
It's solving great mysteries and finding great treasures. And here's, I want to admit something to you, to the both of you, and to anybody listening. I came up with, off the top of my head, about the lamest explanation of how my show would be about mysteries and treasure. Are you ready for my lame, my lame kind of cover? Ready. I said, well, oh yeah, like these wonderful archaeological sites in Mesa Verde and Cahokia and Three Rivers Petroglyphs and the Blythe Intaglios and Serpent Mound. Um, they all are historical treasures. <laughs> it's a mystery that not more people know about them. <laughs> How's that, right? Tie it up in a beautiful bow. <laughs> remarkably, nobody bought what I was selling. <laughs> so <laughs> so no, weird. They really they, they want something else, and they're not going to get it from me. That's the problem with pop culture. It's all Victorian tropes, and it's got to be mysteries and treasure. The great, the great white uh, explorer finding mysteries and treasure that relate to the, the ancient world. So let's talk a little bit more about your book, and one day, which will one day be your yes, long-running yes. cable series. Um, <laughs> so... Ancient America, 50 right. Archaeological Sites to See for Yourself. Um, Available wherever for, books are sold. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm does, on the street corners. I'll be on the street corner in your hometown with a little sandwich board, hawking books. For sure. <laughs> when you talk about, when you, when you encourage your students and the readers of your book, which is available wherever fine books are sold, um, <laughs> to see a site, what does that entail? Uh, what do you, how do you recommend the average person that may not have um, uh, any experience or expertise right, with right. a particular region or state itself? Uh, what can they do when they just pull off the interstate, off the interstate and check yeah. it out to get the most out of a trip to an archaeological site? Well, all 50 of the sites that are in that book are all publicly accessible. They're all open to the public. And Many of them are in national parks or they're national monuments or they are state parks or state monuments. A couple of them are private, but they are private, privately owned, but open to the public for free. Trails are maintained. Go for it. Uh, the first thing you have to do to enjoy all those sites is to oh, oh buy that book, Ancient America, <laughs> 50 Archaeological Sites of Yourself, available where fine books are sold and even where not so good books are sold. <laughs> yeah. um, and the thing there, the, the thing that the, there's an introductory section in the book where basically what I say is, look, so much of what you think you know about America, about America's history is wrong. It doesn't begin in 1620 and it doesn't begin in 1492. It begins when the first people got here. And that's a very long time ago. And that their their ownership, their their proprietary ownership of this content is something that we have to recognize, that we have to admit and understand, and we have to embrace and even celebrate. And that their the long, long history. That the, my fifty sites book is all about Native American sites um, that are as old as fifteen thousand years old and as recent as a few hundred years old. And by visiting those sites, we are honoring those people and recognizing the the amazing skills that they had in carving out a life here in North America long before my ancestors got here in the late 19th century. So it's a hell of a long time before that. And if you're if you came up if you arrived on the uh, the the at Plymouth on the uh, what it was the the Nina the Pinta the Santa Maria no those are Columbus ships Mayflower. The Mayflower. <laughs> 
I forget all these shifts, right? Uh, what, what, what's the terrible joke? What do what do April showers bring? Mayflowers? What do Mayflowers bring? Pilgrims. Uh, I know. I'm sorry about that. Um, but but so so the deal is that that there's this incredibly long history. Archaeology is not about Egypt. It's not about Stonehenge. It is. It can be. But the story of America is every bit as interesting. And you, you know, damn it, if you're an American, that's even if you're not Native American, you owe something to that story. As uh, part of that story is 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 sh- should be something that you embrace, and that when you go and visit these sites, and I, I try in, fi- in the fifty sites book, I really do try to make sites that are not just legally accessible, but also relatively easily accessible to to folks who are not mountain climbers or not somebody who wants to walk seventeen miles through sand and snow. That these are are uh, some of them take some effort to get to, but most of them are. Something you could do with with older folks with, and I'm getting to be one of those older folks. Maybe not older folks with a broken leg, but but you know, once they're healed, um, and kids, uh, and you can, it's it's a way of celebrating and embracing part of it's it's America's history. One of the things that I've always been amazed by uh, is the fact that if I, when I went to the American Museum of Natural History as a kid, there there's the room of the dinosaurs, right? There and then there's like the room of the American Indians, so there's a story there. It's the American Museum of Natural History, so that Indians are part of natural history, not human history, right? Ooh. It's natural, history. and they're extinct, like the dinosaurs. And I want, and I think that so often people think of that 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 their and, and so many museums are are organized in that way that Native America is part of natural history, not human history, and you can't. Believe that when you go out, especially in the Southwest, where you're on the Navajo reservation and there are Navajo people uh, working the the it's the National Park Service building, but it's on the Navajo it's on the res, and it's it's their ancestors who have lived in that in Canyon de Chelly, for example, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they still live there today, and you're in their house you're in their living room and they take you around to see the artwork left by their ancestors at the, the cliff dwellings left by the ancestors of the hopi uh another language group and to you 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 it's almost impossible to disassociate human beings living breathing human beings with that history and you no longer view native americans as part of natural history that's human history it's, it's as important as the folks who built Stonehenge or the folks who built the pyramids or the folks who built the Great Wall of China, this was going on here in uh, in the the United States of America over thousands of years. So that's that's at least that's what I hope people get out of this. That it's like, huh, this is a a, a long and noble history, and it's something that's that's worthy of attention and celebration. And, and then the logistics are really pretty easy in most of these cases. They, there's a parking lot. There's a there's a, a marked trail. Uh, take photographs. Don't touch anything. Uh, talk to local people. Talk, talk to the park rangers. Talk to the native people who are proud of what their history re- reflects and represents. Um, they are, after all, the first the first Americans. And that's a weird thing to say because you know they're the first peoples or they're the the original settlers. Whatever, however they they, they want to be described. Um, and 
And maybe I'm naive, you know, maybe I'm naive enough to believe that just exposing people to that is going to open up their minds and change their perspectives. I hope that's true. Well, out of that list of 50 or even out of any others that you can think of, are there any particular sites that our listeners should hasten to see? Are there any that are in danger of uh, being lost or damaged or anything like that? More than just literally everything on Earth. Well, yeah, more than just in danger natural of ravages damage and of, loss at this yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. What, you know, very often when I'm, the, that question is phrased a lot less elegantly, oh, not being serious, you. but people, well, people will say, all right, Fader, of the 50 sites, which one's your favorite? And I say, I have four children. I dare you to ask me which one of them is my favorite. <laughs> it's like, well, no, they are all incredibly important. Here's what I will say. Um, look, I have been to southeastern Utah a bunch of times. I have spent a bunch of time in Bluff, Utah. Bluff is, well, I'm, I, I'm not even sure how, what the, the legal status is at this point. But when President Barack Obama, one of his last, one of the last things he did when he was in office was he established the Bears Ears National Monument, mm -hmm. which is 1.3 million acres in southeastern Utah. Bluff, Utah is the southeastern corner of that. It's not, a, it's not quite a rectangle, but it's, it's this absolutely marvelous area. And before I knew for years that the native people uh, who very often disagree on a bunch of stuff, we're talking about Navajo and Zuni and Ute and Hopi, uh, uh, and uh, I think a, a couple of different bands of the Ute, uh, who very often are at loggerheads with one another, they all came together and agreed on this, that that area deserves federal protection. And it's not private land. It, it's it's all land that's already administered by the federal government. It's BLM land and National Park Service land and some of it's maybe reservation land. And they have for years been trying to get that designated as a national monument for additional protections. Barack Obama and a bunch of environmental organizations and historical organizations got that place named a national monument. Uh, we are all aware of the fact that the current resident, the current occupant of the White House, he who shall not be named, we're not, again, not sure of the legality of this, has scaled back tremendously uh, the extent of Bears Ears. There is right now, I don't know that there is a Bears, Bears Ears National Monument. I've been there, uh, and that, in fact, is one of my 50 sites. The, the, the number of sites that all are represented in Bluff, and that includes um the Butts, uh, lower butler wash rock art river ruins which is a, a cliff dwelling um there's a butler wash ruins another set of ruins and so it's just it is it is i've been to a lot of places in, I, in doing research for the book i don't know that i've ever seen an area that is a denser accumulation of amazing archaeological uh artifacts but also Mormon settler cabins that deserve protection and preservation, uh, early stagecoach stops, again, places that deserve, they're part of our, part of the history of that area, deserve protection and are within, are, were within the original uh, boundaries of Bears Ears. Those places are all now, I think, very much endangered because even though they are still federal property, the use of ATVs where, where there's there are examples of, of this where ATVs go off trail and destroy artifacts that are on uh, ceramics that are on the ground and get destroyed. Uh, graffiti on petrical panels, petrical panels that actually have been where 
people have gone in with with power equipment to try to remove the petroglyphs, I guess, so they can display them in their homes. These places are all gravely endangered uh, because of and, and increases in uh, uh, mineral extraction and gas extraction where with fracking and these places deserve protection. Uh, you know, we like to claim that we are the wealthiest country in the world and we can do anything. Well, one of the things we should be able to afford to do is set aside areas that are so important, that are so beautiful, but also so resonant with the story of our history. And our history goes back maybe 25,000 years or 30,000 years. If we can't do that, then we're admitting that we are, what, too poor or too weak to do that? Uh, that's kind of tragic. Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our tea Public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timeular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timeular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash timeular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash timeular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping. So of all the places, most of them are protected and preserved, at least by law. Bears Ears now, it is in legal limbo. Mm-hmm. Go and see go and see the rock art there. Go and go and hire yourself a Navajo guide to float you down the San Juan. Uh, we had a, a spectacular guy. Uh, his last name is Greg Laindeer. And Greg took us down the in a, these, these these inflatable this inflatable raft and took us we we Got off the river. He asked what we were interested in. He took us to these rock art panels that uh, just astonishing places. So go, go engage, man. And, and 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 talk to people who live there. Who's that's where their their culture, um, their people have been for thousands of years. And get a complete new appreciation for American history. That it doesn't start in 1492. 
when you composed the the list, and so I know so it's not quite, it's not really 50, so I'm like, like, you know, sub points to sort of fit yeah, well, it we, in. Yeah. Uh, so was it difficult to winnow it down to a nice oh, yeah. round number to, to put in a book? That's why at the very end, there's like uh, additional sites. So right. a whole bunch of sites <laughs> that said, look, you know, they, they could be in there too. And, you know, part of my problem with, with the 50 is my initial, I, I wanted to be pure. I wanted to, and 50 was just, it's just a round number. 50, but it really is like you figured it out, is more than 50. Um, and initially I said, not what well, I want these sites to be sites that are all, that just looking at them, there's a wow factor, right? Where somebody who knows nothing about archaeology looking at, at the field where, you know, the Clovis culture was defined. They're not, you know, it's a great story, but they're going to look at an open field and say, okay, I, I came here to see grass growing. <laughs> I wanted sites that were really good and where people would look at them with no background, who would look at them and go, wow, that's really quite amazing. I want to know more. So I want to spread it out. Meadowcroft Rock Shelter, which is one of the 50, is a gigantically important site it looks pretty cool, but basically it's an excavated cave. Uh, most people will look at that and say, compare it to Mesa Verde, the, the various cliff dwellings, and say, well, Mesa Verde is a lot more impressive. And yeah, I get that. But I wanted a, I wanted a site that was really old. I wanted a site in the east because uh, I don't have a lot of those. So that's you know, western Pennsylvania. Uh, so there was some of that kind of, oh, this is, you know, here's another cliff site. Well, I've got a lot of cliff dwellings. Let me show something else that I don't have. And I wanted sites with great stories. You know, She Who Watches, Sagadwalal, this amazing rock art site up in uh, uh, the state of Washington. It's just, a, it's, it's a beautiful, but the story is so, so cool. And it's a story told by the native people who made that rock art. So that, that connection between living people and this amazing piece of art. So yeah, so I wasn't so pure about it. And, but, but here's, <laughs> Now, here's the funny thing. Not to put you, know, you on blast here. <laughs> but here, but here's here's the thing, right? So, and here's where I'm going to be. I, I, I will. I, I often tell people, my God, it sounds like he's shamelessly promoting his books, and that's not true. I'm very much ashamed. Uh, so I'm going to shamelessly promote <laughs> another book. Here's the deal. Uh, so when I was done with the book, the book went to sleep. Right, went to went to press, and Lee and Silverman, who was my editor. And any author who doesn't give a shout out to the person who, who who signed the book and who worked with you throughout the whole process, you're doing them a disservice. Leanne is responsible for how good I think that book is. And Leanne and I were just talking on the phone after it was done, you know, decompressing. And Leanne said something to me, which initially I thought to myself, I'm never speaking to this woman again. And what she said to me was, all right, well, now that this is done, Kenny, how about ancient America too, 50 more sites to visit. That's not the first thing you want to hear when you've just done years of research and years of travel and years of writing. But you know, when you're an author and a publisher says, okay, we want, let's talk about your next book. You're dumb if you say, no, I don't want to do that ever again. Um, and that's when, so, so those, the, the, the sites that are in the additional section in the back, Maybe someday I'll go back and do uh, you know a separate volume on those sites. I've been to most of those as well. I, I was probably hit um, I don't know eighty or a hundred sites in my quest to find fifty. Uh, but you know I also have this this the, the pseudo archaeology interest. So 
off the top of my head when I was talking to Leanne, literally, I had no, I didn't think this out beforehand, but when she asked about what's good, what are you going to do with Ancient America 2, I said, um, uh, well, um, um, well, you know my, my existing interest in archaeological frauds, myths, and mysteries, that's another one of my books. What, hey, Leanne, what if I were to, like, you know, merge Ancient America with frauds, myths, and mysteries and do instead, like, a guide to, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 of the strangest, weirdest, oddest, fake or not fake archaeological sites in North America? And I, there was that moment of silence on the phone when you share what you think is a pretty good idea with somebody. And it's just you realize, oh, my God, they think that's the stupidest thing they ever heard. But instead, Leanne, after her pause, said, it actually sounds like it would be a lot of fun. At which point, of course, I covered it. Oh, yeah, well, I, I thought so, Leanne. And sure enough, that archaeological oddity, that field guide to lost civilizations and other strange uh, lost civilizations, ancient visitors and other strange sites uh, in North America, that came, that came out well, less than a year ago now. And it's 40 really strange and bizarre sites some of which are actually in ancient America, but this focuses on the, the misrepresentation or misinterpretation of them. And again, they're all places that you can visit and see the real story behind those places. Cool. Awesome. Let me know when you want to hear about the, a movie everybody should see. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one last sort of uh, Ken Fader expertise question. Do you have advice for those of us in or adjacent to academia who, who want to create content or communicate with a general audience versus an academic audience? Like how do we kind of tailor these things differently? Or do you think that information should be presented kind of in a middle ground sort of way? Like how do we, how yeah, do we like approach? When you, in, your, in your work, you've written like very academic things and very sure. much like general audience things and so do you is that process different for you for those two audiences or is it the same all right so to answer the second question first i try to make it not different um in fact that's one of the one of the knocks on my like my my textbook past perspective which is meant for classroom use for somebody teaching a world prehistory survey course and one of the knocks on it is well it's it's written it's, it's writing is very in formal and it's very kind of big picture and which and my response to that is well yeah that's probably what most students are going to get the most out of um they're not you know you have like an eight an 800 page introductory text that's 200 bucks and there are no figures like it or not that probably is not going to engage students in the in the, in the story the nicest thing that students my own students who know me ever say about my world prehistory book is they say you know what fader it doesn't read like a textbook it reads like you're telling us the story which just blows me away because that's kind of it's got to be a little more formal in writing i can't drop as many f-bombs they Mm. won't allow me Mm -hmm. to but it's it's like yeah that's what i'm going for i'm telling you a story i want it to be easy easily digestible and not like oh my god i gotta read that paragraph again because there are so many really big words that i don't know and by the way anybody who writes textbooks who says you know what you don't understand a word look it up guess what nobody's looking up those words nobody's stopping to look <laughs> them up uh, 
but maybe if it's a digital version and they, the, the, the dictionary is kind of built in, maybe, but otherwise, no. But now in terms of if you are adjacent to academia, maybe you're in CRM, the two people, there are two people who are, you, who I'm sure you know, uh, there's, there's um, Archie Fantasies, mm-hmm. right? Head, who is both in her blog and in the, the podcast. And again, she's CRM. She works in CRM. Uh, she's that's a really good model, I think, to follow of 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 what she has accomplished. And you know, for for a couple of years, I was deeply involved in that. Uh, so is Jeb Card. Um, and now we are a little. We've stepped back a little bit, but she's doing this great work. Uh, Steph Hamholder is another person who does a lot of. She's CRM up in Canada. Yeah, yeah. And Steph is doing really, really good work. Um, again, in blogs and. Just, even on just something as simple as Twitter, where you're getting that word out. Ultimately, a lot of the a lot of the fringe or whatever you want to call them are are producing their own YouTube content, and that I think is very effective. And I wonder if Digital Hammurabi, uh, no, they're, they're fantastic, and they've got some really good YouTube videos. Uh, I'm at a point in my life and career where maybe that's not going to be the way I go, and I, I enjoy writing, and I'm going to keep doing that, but. But for, oh my God, I was about to say, oh, stop me from saying, well, you young people, <laughs> you, maybe you could do something with that. the internet. Holy crap. Oh, wait a minute. I've got to calm down now. But, but, but really, and for true, people who know that are more comfortable with that technology, maybe producing our own YouTube content. Uh, and, I, and I don't know what the, the, how you monetize that, if that you want that to be part of your job. But I think that that's, that may be an important avenue or important channel in the future. But again, there are people out there who are doing this stuff with, uh, with a, a, a popular audience in mind. And Sarah Head and Steph Hamholder are the two names that come to my mind immediately. I, I know that I follow both of them on sure. Twitter and their various accounts. And we will um, make sure to link to them on our show notes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Definitely should. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, so oh, how, about, uh, how about that movie? What's this movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, now, I swear this is not just another attempt on my part to sell books. <laughs> One of the 40 sites in Archaeological Wait, Odyssey, you have a movie? Guys, are you guys familiar with the, the hidden Egyptian city in California? Wait, the, the Cecil B. DeMille one? Yes. It's an incredibly cool story, right? That in the 1920s, Cecil B. DeMille does the yeah. Ten Commandments. In the Guadalupe, a, a couple hours, three hours north of Los Angeles, and at the, he's got this amazing set. And if you if you watch that silent movie, uh, it really works really well. Um, and at the end of, at the end of him doing that, the contract called for Demille to dismantle the set and schlep it out. It was private property then, and he ran out of money. And he figured, oh, what the hell? I'm just going to leave it there. But he was afraid of other movie companies kind of showing up paying the landowner some rent and then using the set that cost yeah. him like a million bill. So he bulldozed it and covered it with sand. The thing was though, because of the winds stuff became uh, exposed. Uh, there were uh, 24, I could be off by one or two sphinxes, small sphinxes that he produced as part of this path, mm-hmm. this Avenue. Mm-hmm. And some of those became exposed and there are photographs of people in the 1930s, like picnicking on these Astro <laughs> Paris Sphinxes. And a guy who ran a golf course in, in California just showed up one day and carted two of the Sphinxes away and put them at the entrance to his golf course. 
So it's like, oh my god. But now, so the deal is, yeah, uh, people have known about the the remnants of that movie set for years, and ultimately, fairly recently, it's been excavated. So it, it's a really cool project in. The, the the folks at Doug Jance, who's uh, the director of the the uh, uh, the Gua, the what is it called Guadalupe the, the the Dunes Museum the Dunes Museum in Guadalupe, uh, California. Uh, he was been involved in hiring CRM people. Went out there and actually did a full scale excavation. They revealed fragments of some of the sphinxes. It's just incredibly cool. And then there's a uh, now a museum display at the Dunes Center in Guadalupe. The Sci-Fi Channel picked up on this, and they did a movie. <clears throat> the movie is called Sands of Oblivion. Now, are either of you fan- Firefly fans? Yes. Two of the stars of Firefly are in that movie. Wow. Adam ba- Adam Baldwin, right? Oh, yeah, Baldwin, okay. Yeah. One of the Baldwin brothers. And Morena Bakarin, the woman who played the consort. Oh, yeah. the uh, Yes. I was going to say concubine, but that's not right. Yes. The two of them are in this movie, and they play... They're married. They're both archaeologists. They're married, but getting a divorce. Uh huh. Yep. She, so she has been hired. She has been hired to to excavate Cecil B. DeMille's uh, movie set. Now, now we get to the sci-fi part, right? What right. they don't know, the diggers there don't know, is that Cecil B. DeMille. None of this is true. He went to Egypt before filming. And purchased a whole bunch of genuine artifacts to use in in the set uh-huh. as part of the set. One of them turns out to have been a cursed amulet that ancient Egyptians yes. uh, did a, did some kind of a spell. And there's this horrible evil demon who they they captured and put in this amulet, mm-hmm. and they buried mm-hmm. what. DeMille doesn't know is that when people in Egypt were like looking for stuff to, to get him, they thought, you know what? We'll give him the amulet. That'll, he'll get the amulet out of Egypt. The demon will no longer be here. So DeMille – and the movie has this, this – uh, this goes back in time to DeMille. DeMille, by the way, is played by the guy who does Homer Simpson's voice. Hank Azaria? No, wait. That's not. Yes. It, no, it's not Hank Azaria. It's Dan – Dan, Dan Castellaneta. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's that. And uh, what is it? George Kennedy is a really famous old actor. Now, this now is it's just Homer Simpson roles. in this movie. And, uh, yeah. And it's just, it's, uh, so yeah, when you hear him, you have to not hear Homer Simpson. <laughs> so it's, it's, so it's the 1920s. They bury this thing and the demon escapes and starts killing people. Uh, Somehow they manage to put the demon back in the ground. But when the archaeologist, this is, a, this is one, something that you guys need to be very concerned about about what if you in doing some archaeology uncover an amulet that's got a demon in it you should watch this movie because it shows what you have to do oh, good. The, good. the demon is released and starts killing people um, you have not lived you have not lived until you see a demon take over a backhoe and cut off a field worker's head by running it into him oh. that that happens in the movie uh, oh there are flies and then then like two dimensional Egyptian pieces of art come off of one of the fake walls. What? It is really amazing. Oh, uh, let's have a, a watch a Facebook live watch event. It's a, I think it's on, I think you can see it for free for nothing on YouTube, but I'm not positive of that. <laughs> I, I was, 
Otherwise, bought the DVD. They're expecting me to I give to $3 of my money yeah. <laughs> to Amazon Prime to rent it. But it's, it's you know what? You get enough people together, have them all chip in, make popcorn, yeah. drink a lot. Okay. Probably, I don't drink at this point in my life, but it probably would be maybe more meaningful if you were drunk. I'm maybe Altered in some way, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. If whatever. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well... Along with our our hundredth episode, where I watch Ten Thousand BC and then yell at Amber about it, we can do an additional piece. <laughs> oh yeah, no, you definitely could do that for this, where it's just like, oh my god, what is this? And it's so predictable, and there's you know there's a huff. and of course Adam Baldwin, who is getting divorced from from Bacarin, from the, the concert, uh, yeah, right there you go, um, and of course he's having an affair with one of his grad students, so it's like it's it's almost. Too real. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, no mm. kidding. Well, it's just what you know. I, let's. I, I won't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna judge. The movie is just so wonderful. Uh, everything about it. <laughs> I think that's worth three dollars. I think that's in our budget, Amber. There you okay. go. There you go. <laughs> but then, what you have to do? You have to write a review of it. Put mm. it on your webpage. Okay, we can do that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. All right, we have we have two final questions that we ask all of our special guests. What is the best thing about anthropology? Oh my god! Yeah, right. <laughs> it's so hard. We and didn't. like like all of my questions, my answer is long winded, right? <laughs> um, the best thing about anthropology is when I was a kid growing up, I read a lot of science fiction, and one of my absolutely favorite, no lie. Uh, science fiction authors was Ursula Le Guin. Mm. Yes, Ursula Le Guin, spectacular. She died not that long ago. No, yeah. uh, her parents were Alfred and Theodore Kroeber. So we've got like these two founding people in um, anthropology here in America, and I uh, I believe very deeply that her her uh, science fiction was very deeply informed by the anthropology she was exposed to growing up in the home of two anthropologists and like living on the Navajo reservation for a while and, and being exposed to other cultures. And so my long winded answer is the best thing about anthropology is just that is, is being steeped in, I mean, Ursula Le Guin had it like personally, but for me that the, the training, the, the, the undergraduate work and the graduate work is about being steeped in something way outside of the narrow confines of the culture in which I was raised. And, and just this this panoply, this this enormous diversity of the human experience. And I, for me, and being interested in archaeology, I think that's an even expansion of that because it's even more diverse when we look at past people, people who didn't have agriculture, for example, folks who didn't live in cities. So that's what makes anthropology really exciting for me is is being forced to confront the human condition that's so different from you know growing up in Brooklyn, New York as a kid in a Jewish-Italian neighborhood. That was great, and I love those people, and I love that experience, but that's a narrow slice of humanity, and that's and that's that's what anthropology is to me. Um, okay, one more difficult one. If you, oh, I know. <laughs> hey, we never, we never claimed these would be easy questions. If you could go back and witness any moment in archaeology or anthropology, what would you choose? Low-hanging fruit here, like when Carter, yeah, King, right, King like Tut entered the, yeah. yeah. Oh, so so it could be either something that happened five thousand years ago, or something that happened within the story of 
archaeology itself. Yeah, yeah or yeah. your own birth. No one said that yet. So ah, you, uh, you are the first I, to say that. I want to see my own birth. I, you know, I want to, I want that third person perspective. No, no, no. Uh, that's just my usual snotty answer when I don't know. I don't have any other really good answer. Well, I'm going to give you two answers then. So ha on you, right? <laughs> um, answer number one is, yeah, you know, I'd really like to see them erecting the trilithons at Stonehenge. I want to see how they did that. <laughs> um, I know we have lots of examples, lots of, of, of experimental archaeologists who have gone in and tried to replicate that. I sure as hell would like to see that happen. So if there's that one moment in time, it's those people erecting the, those center, the horseshoe of the the, uh, the five sets of three stones each mm-hmm. at, at Stonehenge. But, you know, if you ask me tomorrow, I would say something else entirely. Uh, but we'll, I'll stick to that for, for now. Uh, that was why I saw Stonehenge at, at a pretty early point in my life. Uh, parents, the first time we ever traveled out of the country, we went to Stonehenge. And uh, it, was, it was a formative moment. And so just being there, having been there now a couple of times, it's like, yeah, I'd like to see that. And then in the history of archaeology itself, of the c- conduct of archaeology, it's it's when Ignatius Dudley actually discovered Atlantis. That must have been <laughs> mind-blowing, you know? <laughs> and I think I'll leave it at that because that's like the silliest answer I could come up with. And, and anything else would be, yeah, okay, sure, Carter o- opening the, the, the door to King Tut's tomb is going to be a top five for sure. Um but and you know the Hiram Bingham d- discovering, although nobody, of course, he discovered uh, Machu Picchu. You know, stepping it into that. I mean, what's and here's my, my even longer-winded answer is that in a way, when when you come to discovering things, I get it. I have a really emotional response when I see things that I've in the, in the archaeological sites, rock art, great monuments that I've read about, that I know about, but I encounter them. I have a you know, when when I walked into the great gallery in uh, this amazing, amazing pictograph panel in Utah, in Canyonlands, uh, in Horseshoe Canyon, uh, and I had seen those pictures there, they're iconic. But when I actually walked into that that rock shelter and saw those things, it was that that moment of my discovery has more meaning to me on a personal level than you know thinking about, well, could you go back in time and see yeah. King Tut's tomb open? Yeah. Uh, when I first saw the, the the monk's mound at Cahokia, when I first saw the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpent at Chichen Itza, when I first saw Stonehenge, those moments of discovery, you know, I'd like, I, I would go back in time and relive all of those <laughs> because they, they were so meaningful for me. It could be your next book. Well, that's that's a lame answer. You can cut that one no, out. No, no, I love that. That was great. Yeah, it could be your next book. Your your moments of discovery. All fifty. Of them. And it's all about me. I mean, everything <laughs> should be about me, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been really, really, really wonderful talking to you. Oh, it's been a blast. Yeah, you guys are great. You guys, you know, this was this was fantastic. Thank, thank you, you for inviting me. I really appreciate uh, you inviting me to participate. So that's, it's just awesome. Yeah. And listeners go buy those books. We will have a list of Ken's books uh, yeah, on actually, our show notes. Multiple, multiple copies would be just yeah, fine. Gifts for family uh, yeah. and friends. Mm-hmm. The Lots holidays friends. are coming up. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. I <laughs> actually, for anybody who's in the uh, Massachusetts, I'm doing, I've been doing a book signing at Tufts, Tufts University, uh, uh, sponsored by 
the American, uh, the uh, Archaeological Institute and the Peabody Foundation on, I believe it's the (laughs) of October. So yeah, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, it's going to be the American oddities, uh, archaeological oddities. I'm going to do that up there, October the 19th. So go online, look for it. It's free, open to the public. So if you're in the Boston area, come on down, say hi. Anything else you want to plug while we're, while we got you? Uh, yeah, if you're in Northwestern Connecticut, um, <laughs> there's the, the the American Indian Archaeological Institute, a beautiful facility in Western Connecticut, dedicated to Native American people. I'm going to be doing a book signing again, archaeological oddities on I don't uh, the, maybe it's the 13th of October. Uh, that one you got to pay for, but I you know, to get it to the museum. But that's a beautiful place. You get a, a uh, there's a wonderful outdoor museum, an indoor museum, and I'll be doing a book signing there. I'll see y'all on Twitter and the Instagrams. Yes. Oh, yeah, we'll and, be there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And right. this was great fun, guys. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Feel better. You bet. Bye-bye. I yeah. hope so, yeah. Bye-bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.